Uh, Esther chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Casey Rainey to come and read for us. He's going to read the first few verses of this chapter, Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting the seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Thank you, Casey. Imagine with me going to a retirement party. It would be odd if the person who was retiring wasn't present. Imagine going to a bridal shower. It would be odd if the bride-to-be wasn't present. Odder than that is when you open a book of the Bible and you fully expect to read about God and the name of God isn't mentioned. That is the book of Esther. No direct mention of God. No mention of Him. No Jerusalem. No temple. No explicit mention of prayer. No worship. No law. No Torah. It's a different kind of book. Welcome to the book of Esther. At times it seems that God is nowhere. At times it seems that He cannot be found. But then at other times, it is more than clear that actually God is now here. He is, he is present. This morning, as we begin a walk over the next several weeks through this uh, important book of the Bible, I want us to look today at a couple things, and I, I think it'll at least give a baseline for the weeks to come when we dig further into this story. So I'd like at least in this at least today, to walk through this first chapter with you. And then after we have gone through the chapter, trying to understand what the Bible is saying, I want us to see, kind of pull up and see what we should take away from it. So let's go through the story and then pull up and see what we should take away from it. Let's track with the storyline. In case you read some of this, but we'll, we'll dig back into it. Look at verse 1. Esther chapter 1 and verse 1. So we have in the days of Ahasuerus and and another name for him. So some of your translations, it seems like we got a situation over there. I'm glad. I'm glad other people are on it. 
This has been a nutty morning. So anyway, here we are. Hopefully, like, nothing will fall down. Let's go back to the Bible. So some of your translations may, instead of a say it may say Xerxes. It's just different ways of translating the same name, same person. It says he reigned from India to Ethiopia, in verse 1, over 127 provinces. It says that he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So what the author is doing is giving us some orientation. It tells us in the third year of his reign in verse 3 that he gave a feast for all his officials and servants and that the army of Persia and Media and, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And he shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, actually 180 days. So six months goes on with this amazing feast of this king. And I think before we just kind of parachute into the book of Esther, it may be helpful to have some sort of context to understand what what is going on in this book. And it will take all manner of discipline not to give you a History Channel documentary presentation here. But I think you've got to know some of the history if you're going to understand the book of Esther. So if we can, if we can look at a timeline, like when does all this happen? If we can keep that up for just a moment. So again, this is, this is my world. This is what I love here. All right? So I'll try to be disciplined and keep it concise here. You have obviously the 400 silent years when there's really no scripture written. So all this is happening before that. In 722 BC, the fall of the northern kingdom happens to Assyria and people are deported from Israel and kind of evicted from their land into other places in the Middle East. If you're kind of wondering, like, where does Esther in the book of Daniel coincide? Well, actually, the, the events of Daniel begin in about 600 BC and Daniel actually takes place over a long period of time. So it, it extends for a while, but that gives you some idea of where does Esther fit into the book of Daniel. In 586, the fall of Jerusalem happens to the Babylonians, and the deportations continue. More and more people are evicted out of Jerusalem and put in other places in the Middle East. But, but after only 50 years, Babylon falls as well to the Persians, and we even have some record of that in Daniel. And Cyrus, who's the Persian leader, has people go back from, from Babylon and other places in the empire. He lets them go back to Jerusalem, and so a, a temple is begun and rebuilt. And by 516, the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, but not everybody went. So some people stayed in Babylon and some people stayed in Persia and some people stayed in other places. When you come to 483, that's when the story of Esther begins, what we just read about in chapter one. If you're kind of comparing like, where does Nehemiah fit in? It's about 40 or so years later. So again, that gives us some sort of idea of like, when does this happen in history? This king, Xerxes, who is mentioned, is, by this time, most historical records, and there's lots on this particular king, even outside the Bible, tell us he's 35 years old when this happens, when this whole story uh, takes place, or at least when it begins. It might also be helpful, I mean, we had some geographical references that this story happened in Susa, and it stretched out, like the empire stretched out from India to Kush. And, and some of this is helpful in that we can kind of get an idea. So you see where the pinpoint is. That is what would be ancient Susa. So it's just interesting what happens in this part of the world. This part of the world is always a complicated place, no less so in the Bible, no less so today. 
The empire extended probably to modern-day Pakistan and went down to Sudan. And part of even the desire was the Persian Empire wanted to go toward Greece to take over some of that area as well. And there's lots of historical references to that. Sitting kind of right in the middle, again, this is at least orients us to, okay, where in the world are we talking about and where in time are we talking about? But I'd rather, as much as I love maps, I love maps. As much as I love timelines, I enjoy timelines. I'd rather you have your eyes looking at Scripture. Because I think there's, there's going to be some things that God will make evident. One thing that is interesting as you read this first chapter of the book of Esther is the number of times, if you're one of those that likes to underline or circle or at least notice repetition, you will notice again and again the word king comes up. This is a story about a king. I mean, his name is mentioned multiple times. The, the word king is mentioned. And then if you just underline all the times like the, the, royal, the royal this and the royal that and the, the house of the king, the, the royal palace and the queen, and it, it gives you a picture that this first chapter is all about royalty. It's all about the king. And, and even in those first few verses, the army is present, the army of the, the Persians, the army of the Medes, and there's officials. And And this is a king who's powerful and powerful enough to rule geographically a a wide, expansive area. He has armies at his disposal, at his discretion, and he throws a feast. Often power and and feast, food, often those are attached, aren't they? So we even think of like a, a state dinner that's held at the White House. It's meant to show this is a powerful place you've come to, recognizing the symbolism of of nations. This is what goes on. I mean, we, we read in this chapter, it's the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. This is a show that seems to be lengthy. The king looks large and in charge. And the, it's the king is like, he is obviously showing his wealth and his power. I think it, kind of between the lines is look how generously he's providing for his subjects. He takes care of them. In the midst of that, though, he, it's not without a cost, right? I'll, I'll take care of you, but you better be a, loyal to me. You better honor me. You better respect me. You better show gratitude to me, because here I am giving this large feast. And so the first four verses communicate. Look at verse 5. Again, let's keep walking through this chapter. When all those 186, six months worth, when those days were completed... The king gave for all the people present in Susa, so Susa is kind of the host here, the citadel, both great and small. He gave them a feast, and it lasted seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there was these white cotton curtains. I mean, this beautiful display, violet hangings. I mean, verse 7, the drinks are served in golden vessels. And remember, you got, again, the royal wine, not just any wine, but the king's wine. Drinking was according to this edict. No compulsion. I I think what that's saying is like every man to himself, every woman to himself, whatever you want to do, the king has made his stand. Whatever you want to do, have a good time. The king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. I think the picture in Susa is maybe something like the Olympics. So we got all nations there or a G8 summit, but like merge that with Mardi Gras. It's a drinking party. Everybody's having a good time. Probably the best decisions aren't going to come out of this. Probably not. That, that's not a hard guess to make, right? But, but the picture is one wild celebration. And the king's picking up the tab. 
The scene is meant to convey excess, like just over the top. Just like you're watching some sort of news or something shows up in the, the feed on the right hand of the screen and you see like this party where the dress cost how much and who was there? What was the band? How, what, who all was a part of this? And, and you look at it and you, you, you are somewhat impressed, but only for a short time because you think, what excess? Who has to throw parties like that to think that they're valuable or worth something? Oh, there's another feast going on in verse 9. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. I I believe that's just a nice way of saying his harem, which will come to play in the next chapter. She gives a, a feast there on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. He commanded Mehuman and Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zithar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And he commanded that they bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. What is he thinking here? Ah, we have no idea. We have no idea of all his motives. Is this some sort of like patriotic moment? For the queen to come in, you know, a rousing rendition of God save the queen and everybody will be all for Persia and all for the King Xerxes and his wife. I, I tend to think not. I think the clues are telling us this is not that. We got alcohol involved. I, I don't think this is that. I think this is much more like I'm going to show off my trophy wife. And again, his judgment may not be the best at this time. We could probably uh, give that. Alcohol is involved. And another element often of feast and power and alcohol, especially in a patriarchal world, it almost seems inevitable that somewhere women are going to be taken advantage of. It just seems like it goes with it. Their time, our time. When you go down the road of arrogance, it often leads toward exploitation. Some expression of poor judgment often comes at the expense of someone else's security and status. This story is no exception. The story is just moving along, isn't it? I mean, we've got the king, and he's large and in charge. Everybody seems to be having a good time. And then it is almost as if the author, and I think intentionally so, just jams the brakes so hard that it almost gives us whiplash as we read. Because everything is going the king's way. Everything is going exactly like he wanted. But then you come to verse 12, and it says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king becomes enraged. His anger burns within him. It all comes to a screeching halt. He has an issue. Everybody, everybody's doing what the king says. And it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful time to be in Persia, except when one person doesn't. We get kind of an emotional description here, right? His anger is burning within him. As I read this story again and again in preparation, I'm just amazed at how quickly it all escalates. How quickly it escalates. A king who can do what he wants, wants to appear in charge, wants to be generous, and his wife won't cooperate. And now we have a situation. 
What, what's going to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men, these are wise men who knew the time, so they, they knew how to discern, like, what's the best thing to do in a particular situation? But this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. So I don't know if this is like his cabinet, his advisors. The men, men next to him, those were, were Karshina and Shethar and Admatha and Tarshish and Maris and Marcina and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, those who had access, who saw the king's face. Those who sat first in the kingdom. So he's got a question for him. These wise men, oh wise men, tell me, according to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has performed, she has not performed the, the command of King Ahasuerus and, and delivered by the eunuchs. This is a special group of wise people, unique access. They understand the time. They immediately are gathered in the king. Say, hey, let's follow the law here. Hmm, I wonder what the law is. Let's bring the, the advisors in. So the advisors come in and let's hear from these wise men who will tell us, what should we do about the queen when she doesn't obey the law? What should we do? Because I'm all for law and order, so let's just follow the law here. What will the wise answer be? Look at verse 16. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials. Actually, all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they'll say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, those who've heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So Vashti says no, and what happens? You didn't know this. I didn't know this. She's committed a crime against all humanity. That's what the advisors say. Everybody in the whole world is now messed up because of what she's done. I mean, it, you can see it begins to escalate. These wise men are, are looking at this and they're saying, this will lead to this. And, and we've, we've, we're going to have a situation, King, where we won't have husbands respected. Do, do we want that? We don't want that. We, be, we better put the lid on this. We better get this under control, contempt and wrath and plenty. We got a progression here. We got a party. Everybody's having a good time. Vashti says, I'm not going. And in that defiance, the king is defied. Now the whole world's messed up. You better do something, king. You better do something. It's amazing. You just kind of take the lid off just a little bit and you go, what in the world is going on here? The author of Esther is uh, pretty amazing in the writing here. So how is the king going to regain respect? Well, fortunately, the wise men formed the PR firm. We can handle this. We can get out in front of this. We can deal with this. We can do the damage control. Have no fear. The empire's going to be okay. We got the best and the brightest working on it. Here's the, here's the advice. Look at verse 19 and 20. 
If it pleased the king, well, let's just let a royal order go out from it. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, which can't be changed, can't be repealed, that Vashti, no longer Queen Vashti, she's done. Like Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she is. You deserve better, king. I just move her out of the way. You deserve better. When the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, this is what will happen. It is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Vashti is done. You can do better. We'll make a decree. We'll show how powerful you are, king. We'll make a law. We'll make a public spectacle out of her. And then we can get on with the menfolk running the world like it should be. Running their house, running the empire. We can, we can just get on with it like it should be. Everybody think that's a good idea? Someone said amen. They were in trouble. <laughs> Verse 21 It must have sounded like a good idea to the king. This advice pleased the king and the princes. You just imagine the king, there's an idea. I like that one. Let's go with this one. There's some some thoughtfulness here. The king likes it. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He, He sends letters to all the royal provinces. It's amazing. The beginning of the chapter has all the provinces' representatives coming to him. But now he's sending letters out to them. So it's, it's interesting, the symmetry here. And send it so that people have it in their own language. And, and this is what you say, that every man be master in his own household, king in his castle. And the whole household is going to speak according to the language of the, the, the husband, the, the dad, going to speak his language in these homes. This is not unlike, I mean, I think we can relate to this. This would not be unlike some corporate memo you get where you can read between the lines. It starts off like management. It's always just interesting when management is this, you know, who who is management exactly? Management has decided that you need to know that the The CEOs and project managers are really in charge and should be treated like it. Management requests your behavior to comply immediately. And you read that and you get that email and you go, this is a joke. This is a joke. We all know that Bob in accounting had a problem with the COO and someone didn't want to have a hard conversation. Someone didn't want to deal with it. And so we get this company-wide email that goes out saying, we're laying the law down around here and it's all a joke. It's all a sham. Someone can't make someone behave the way they want to. And so we're going to send a corporate memo out. And it's one thing when it's a, a company. But what about when it's a world empire scale It just shows you the great lengths to which people go to make sure you know they're the boss. Some things don't change. Some things don't change. The king who started off strong now looks weak. He's quickly angered, easily consoled, gets some quick advice. People play into his pride. This is the one who's driving the empire. It's hard not to scratch your head. I read this quote. I think it's a helpful one although it's a pretty blunt one, says authority makes stupidity more public and more dangerous. Authority makes stupidity more public and more dangerous. This is a world in which power is in the hands of Xerxes, who seems to be incompetent. The best we can hope is he may be amoral. 
Hopefully he's not immoral. This is the story. This is just an interesting, and this would just be like a, an interesting, like, hmm, nice docu- documentary here, a little vignette that we saw. Except for God has different intentions in Scripture. I think uh, of Romans 15.4. So I'm asking, like, what do I do with the story of Esther? And God's not mentioned. So Philippians, when it says rejoice in the Lord, I know what to do with that. I've rejoiced in the Lord. But what do I do here? Romans 15 says that all this was written, all this scripture was written for our instruction, okay? I, I need to be instructed by what we've read. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened, and, and they're, they're an example but they're written down for our instruction. James 1.21 says, I'm to receive the word, the word of God, and in order to implant in my life, I ought to receive it with meekness. So how do I receive the word, word here? I mean, it seems totally different. The, the world of Esther, it seems like, I mean, this is what, 2,400 years ago? I mean, we're, we're just a long way off. It seems like it's complicated to figure out one-to-one correspondence. How do I process this? Esther seems to be a very different world than the world I live in Newark, Delaware. Or is it? Or is it? We just kind of look at what, the, what Esther is telling us about that time period. We just think about it for just a moment. So Esther is describing a world in which God is written out. Nobody has time for it. As a matter of fact, lots of people in the world of Esther make sense of their lives without him. As you read Esther further, it's a place where people who are in charge are, are, are really powerful, dangerously fickle, and often foolish. Foolish. It's a place where women are sometimes put in the position of saying enough is enough to foolish men. It's a place where the most vulnerable of people are often exploited and certainly not cared for well. It's a place where advisors seem to be covering their own tails rather than speaking what needs to be said. This is a world that's tough. This is a place where God's people feel pressure and have to make complicated decisions. What does trust in God look like in that kind of world? You know, as I, as I think of the world of Esther and I think of our own world, actually, they don't seem that different. When I look at the heads of government or entertainment or business, and I think sometimes of the foolish shenanigans that have come out of those places, you scratch your head and go, are you serious? How did they ever get to be making those decisions? The world doesn't seem entirely different. It doesn't seem different when someone can flex their muscle, and maybe that's on a big level or a small level of a a supervisor or a professor or a family member, and can flex their muscle and make your life miserable. In a world where all too often the vulnerable aren't cared for. And I think even this week, down in Dover, in the, in the state house, the representatives will vote on whether it is just okay to terminate a, a, a life unborn at any stage, at any time. The most vulnerable of lives. It's a place where it can be tough. It's a world where it can be tough to be a follower of God and in our case, a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I think there's more, more things that we can see uh, in comparison. So I think this chapter mainly sets a scene, but I don't want us to walk away with merely like just some background information. So here's a couple of lessons that as I've just read and read and read and read this week, like here's some things I'm taking away. I want to share them with you. 
The first thing I I realized quickly is that the Bible often requires a deep dive. Often the Bible requires a deep dive. Frankly, at times we want to play maybe a silly game like Bible roulette. What's the verse? Oh, there's the verse. Okay, that one's the one for me today. And you might be able to do lots of things in life with that, but you're not going to understand God's word. You say, well, I've got about a minute a day to give to God. You think, really? You're going to just try to find a power verse of the day? I mean, is there any relationship worth having in your life to which you're going to give a minute a day to knowing them? Is there anything worth doing in your life that you would say, I think I got about three minutes most days. I mean, seriously, I think the Bible's going to push us. There are places where we get, you know, I can do all things through Christ and we can pretty much easily understand and apply that. But this one, this one's going to push us. And there's so many places in the Bible where we could just float on the surface, not do a deep dive. We can go on an afternoon snorkeling tour and look and see a couple things, but we're never going to understand all of what God has for us, which is why over and over again, we gather in groups, smaller groups to read the Bible, to teach the Bible, to study the Bible, to know it better. Because some things require a deep dive. That's why we say, get in God's word throughout the week, not just here. Let, let me not be the only one that's feeding you. You feed yourself. You go to God's word throughout the week because some things are going to require a deeper dive. So when you come to the story of Esther, it's not a nursery rhyme. It's not a Berenstain Bears. I'm glad for my little kids to read those, find nice morals, but then they're going to live in a world where they're going to grow up and they're going to need more than a simple little moral of the story. They're going to live in a world that's complex, where people do stupid things that wreck other people's lives. They're going to have to know how to think about it, how to process it. We've got to resist the urge to just like, well, whenever I read the Bible, I just try to find a character I can be like. Because you're going to have a hard time, you're going to have a hard time in many places in the book of Esther. Okay, so we'll, we'll just not be like King Xerxes. I'm not sure that... Esther 1's written for you to be like him, don't be like her, be like her, don't be like... I I don't think it's written with that in mind. We can learn some things, don't get me wrong. We can learn like foolish decisions often are related to alcohol. That might be a lesson worth learning. The exploitation of women should have no place in any culture and should be stood against by the people of God. That would be a lesson worth learning. There's so many things we can learn, but if we only have like categories for... just, Just tell me who the good guy and the bad guy is. And then I'll know how to read my Bible. Ah, this story's gonna, it's gonna work you over. Realize that the Bible often requires a deep dive. There's another thing I'm taking away from this chapter, and that is we ought to see God as the one who works behind the scene. No misspelling there. It's intentional. Because there are things that we see, and then there's a God who stands behind those things, and often we don't see them. Certainly in the book of Esther, that's the truth. We don't, we don't see exactly every way in which God is working, but we have to see the one who works behind the scene. These events can seem completely secular. They seem to give no thought to God at all, but God is moving. His will is being done. Esther is all about the providence of God, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come. Providence has been defined in some invisible and inscrutable way. God governs all creatures, actions, circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life. Often without the intervention of the miraculous. We need to know this because there are times where God seems to be remote and he seems to be distant. And we're not finding him front and center and we pray and we don't get answers. 
And just because we don't see him working, it doesn't mean he's doing nothing. In Esther, there is no Red Sea parting. There's no manna being, being miraculously showing up in the morning. The sun doesn't stand still. Great fish doesn't swallow anybody. That's not the book of Esther. People make dumb decisions that hurt other people. People are prideful. People are arrogant. People are exploited. People have a moment in time to do what is right. This is the book of Esther. God is at work behind the things that are seen. I think if this chapter teaches us anything, it also teaches that we ought to worship the only king we can really trust. Worship the only king we can really trust. So Esther 1 sets up this powerful king, right? King Xerxes, authority to make people do his bidding. He has international authority. He can throw a party that lasts for six months and invite everybody. He has a wife, he has a bride who seems to get in the way exactly what he wants. Learn a lot about this king, how he exercises authority, silly antics. How often, though, our lives are not necessarily, I don't bow my knee to that kind of earthly king, but how often in our lives are we ruled by things that are just as foolish and just as incompetent? We, we think we can put our trust in this job or this relationship or this thing going right or this ideal of how we wanted our life to go. And we put a lot of trust in that and we think it'll, it'll all work out. And when, if you just like open the lid a little bit, you go, my goodness, you're trusting in that? You're depending on that? You've made an idol out of that? You're sacrificing for that? You're saying that this is ultimate? Do you not realize that, that King Xerxes is actually a, a foolish king? That despite all the promises of power and, and despite all that you might think your resume can accomplish or like getting to know this person or climbing this ladder or being looked at with this on your business card or having this position of authority, you, you, you think like that is what I need. I need to be that big. I need to be that in charge. I need to be able to throw that kind of party. And then this chapter just washes all that away and says, Really? Really? Because there is another king. There's another king you can trust in the Bible, and it's the only king you can trust, and that is King Jesus. I wonder how often we think of Jesus in reference to king. And Chris was right. We, we sang about it many times this morning. How often do we get the right picture in Revelation of the king of kings and the Lord of lords? who sits on, you want to talk a throne, this is a a royal throne in the heavens and the earth and the universe. You want to talk about all nations coming to this king. This is where all nations come and bow the knee, every tribe and every tongue as Revelation describes. And they bow the knee to Jesus and say, worthy are you, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he takes all nations, believers from all nations, and he makes a family out of them. I want to talk about about a banquet. Read Revelation. And the banquet that is heaven, a feast where there's no foolishness, but a feast where God's people enjoy life at the mercy of the king 
You want to talk about how a king should treat his bride? You see, in, in the Bible, we are called as the people of God, the bride of Christ. The bride of the king. And rather than use the, the bride and exploit her, this is the true king who gives his life for her. Gives up. Greater love has no one than this. And he de- lays down his life. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Bringing us to God. Giving himself for us. If you're going to worship a king today, this is who should be king in your life. Over the next several weeks, we're going to do a, a dive into Esther. We'll look at these things we see and how God is working behind it. We'll, we'll see how God works for the good and survival of his people. But in the middle of it all, can we just start by bowing our knees to the one true king, Jesus Christ? Is he your king? Have you submitted your will, your agenda to him? Or are you still trying to work your own thing out? If you haven't declared your allegiance to him, why not today? Why not take those first steps today? Why not explore that a little bit further? Why not talk to someone about it? What it means to bow the knee to King Jesus. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Let's just take a moment and reflect on whether truly Jesus is our King. And in our prayers, let us worship the only king we can really trust. In a moment, we'll sing a prayer to the Lord saying, we need you every hour. For now, let's pray.